0: Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. After a few more heavy episodes, it's once again time for us to look into the darkly humorous world of communist satire. We'll be focusing on Soviet-Russian author Vladimir Voinovich's last major novel, Monumental Propaganda. Voinovich was an interesting figure, having been born in 1932, and thus lived through most of the major eras of 20th century Russian history, starting with the Stalin years. He started writing humorous novels during the Khrushchev thaw of the 1960s, but once Brezhnev gained power and started a return to more traditional communism, his books could no longer be published in his country. He successfully continued writing secret Samizdat novels and having them published in the West, but this led to harassment by authorities and eventual exile in 1980. After the fall of the Soviet Union, he returned home in 1990 and continued writing. Monumental propaganda focuses on a life that occurs over roughly the same time period as Voinovich's own, but the central character is quite different from the author. Aglaya Stepanova Revkina is a local communist official in the small city of Dolgov, who assisted in the mass arrest of the kulaks, or successful farmers, and then fought in World War II. The book begins in the late 1940s in the aftermath of the war. Like many local officials, Aglaya successfully lobbies to have a large statue of Joseph Stalin put in the town square. She's totally devoted to the great leader, and completely sincere in her desire to honor him. The statue turns out to be very well designed, almost too good to the point of frightening its viewers. Of course, no one can actually admit they're scared of him without dire consequences. One day, an influential member of the Politburo came to Dolgov specifically to see whether it would be worth transferring the monumental masterpiece to Moscow. Upon arriving in the square and looking at the statue, he also experienced quite evident agitation. When he recovered, he said, we don't want any of that. A short while later, this Politburo member himself disappeared mysteriously, and precisely because of that phrase, we don't want any of that. The phrase was reported to Stalin, and Stalin took the words, we don't want any of that, as a reference to himself, not the sculpture, following which the Politburo member vanished, and his name was dropped from various lists, textbooks, reference works, and encyclopedias, so that now not even the historians are able to say for certain whether he ever really existed or not. Unfortunately, after Stalin dies a few years later and Khrushchev reveals his crimes to the world, people's attitudes towards him begin to change. Suddenly people are openly discussing what was previously only the topic of whispers, the millions of lives destroyed, and the economic devastation created by Stalin's policies. Aglaya suffers a moral conflict when she's asked to remove the great leader's name from a propaganda poster. She simply can't accept the change in attitude. While she has happily helped erase memories of thousands of other people imprisoned or censured by the government, Stalin lives in a category of his own. Two loves still dwelt in her heart in perfect harmony. Love for Stalin and love for the party. But now she was being urged to commit an act that she absolutely could not justify with any theories. Now everything had been said clearly and unambiguously and she faced a stark choice to stick with the party or stick with Stalin. An impossible, unnatural choice For her, Stalin was the party, and the party was Stalin. For her, Stalin and the party together were the people, the honor and the conscience of the entire country, and her own conscience as well. Along the way, Voinovich includes numerous vignettes highlighting the failures and contradictions of Soviet society. Does communism truly eliminate social classes and make all people equal and prosperous? Well, here's how the officials reason. It would have been genuinely indecent for the party's nomenclatura workers to live in poor-quality houses but even more indecent for them to live in communal flats. Not just because the party's nomenclatura workers did not know how to coexist in crowded conditions, but because then the details of their lives would have become known to simple Soviet people, and that must never happen. Living apart from other citizens, the nomenclatura of those times, just like its counterpart in these times, had to appear and did appear to be a special breed of people, superior, mysterious, and possessed of the entire body of human knowledge. They understood the secrets of our being, what was what and would be, but they had no interests apart from constant concern for the good of the motherland and our well being. If they needed living conditions a little better than ours, then it was exclusively in order that they might think about us without being distracted by anything irrelevant. He also has a gift for anecdotes about the minor absurdities of Soviet life, as in this stomach churning summary of the mid century sanitation system. On the outskirts of town, people still simply relieved themselves in the open air. But near the center, the public was a little more civilized and made use of communal facilities designed for this purpose, in the form of little planking sheds with two separate entrances and two doors that were often torn off their hinges, one of which bore the letter M and the other the letter W. Naturally, in these little sheds, the younger generations perhaps cannot even picture this, on both the M side and the W side, the wooden floor was embellished with a dozen or so large holes in a long row and soft heaps deposited haphazardly around them, as though the bombardment had not been conducted point-blank, but from long-range guns, and shots had fallen short or overshot the target. Alexei Mikolaevich Makarov, also known as the Admiral, used to say that if it was up to him to decide what monument to erect to our Soviet era, he would not have commemorated Stalin or Lenin or anyone else, but the unknown Soviet man squatting like an eagle on the peak of a tall mountain, Mount Communism, deposited by himself. These issues, of course, mean nothing to Aglaya. She never wavers in her faith in Stalin, and is horrified when the local party committee votes to remove the statue from the town square to be disposed of or melted down. "'Metal?' Aglaya cried indignantly. "'You call this metal? It's a monument to Comrade Stalin. We all erected it together, all the people. We put it up when the folks had no bread to eat and nothing to feed their children with. We denied ourselves everything to put it up here. And you're dragging it through the mud like some lump of pig iron. You ought to be ashamed of yourself.' Rather than let the great statue of Stalin be destroyed, she insists on having it moved to her own living room. Her neighbors are a bit concerned that the giant metal statue might be too heavy for the floor to support, in addition to being creeped out by having a giant Stalin in their midst, but she manages to get it dragged in. She then finds she has to pay a series of regular bribes to her building manager, local permitting inspectors, and similar figures to be allowed to keep it there, eventually melting away all her modest savings, but puts up with this without complaints. The statue dominates her living room for the rest of her life. She cares for the statue better than she cared for her own children. As she washed, she spoke words that her own son had never heard from her. Now, she intoned, "Will oh, wash your nice hair, wash your lovely eyes and nose, and then your ears, then your shoulders, and your chest, and back, and tummy, until she reached the place where the flaps of the greatcoat were parted to reveal the lower edge of the jacket, and immediately below it the spot from which the legs began. Aglaya suddenly felt embarrassed. The spot, as a matter of fact, was smooth, the way it could only have been in a being that was either female or entirely sexless. And for some reason Aglaya felt strangely perplexed by this. She suddenly wondered, and felt anger with herself for doing it, but her doubt still remained. What had the living comrade Stalin had at this spot? She was unable to think of him as having something at that spot, but to imagine that there hadn't been anything proved even harder. She abused herself, calling herself a fool and an old fool for having any such thoughts at all. Despite her past willingness to destroy other people's lives for deviating from the officially dictated party line, which could change from day to day, she cannot be moved on the topic of her idol. Stalin will forever be her hero, her role model, and guide. In an angry letter, she berates her son, Murat, for accepting the new reality. When Stalin was alive, I can't remember anyone ever saying that there was anything about Stalin they didn't like. Everyone said the same thing, a genius, a great commander, our father and teacher the luminary of all the sciences. Did they really not believe what they were saying? Were they all really lying? I don't understand. When were these people being sincere, now or then?" When her son visits and complains about the statue making him and his wife nervous, their relationship deteriorates even further. "'Mom, what's wrong with you?' said Murat, trying to calm her down. He even held out his arms to give her a hug. I'm not talking about Stalin himself, I mean that idiotic sculpture. It's not a man, it's an idol. Ah, it's an idol, Aglaya flared up. How dare you? Take your hands off me. How dare you say about that man who means more to me than... Mom, Murat appealed to her one more time. I'm not your mom, she yelled. You're no son of mine. Clear out the pair of you and don't let me ever see you again. Mom, mumbled Murat, I just don't get it. Why are you so... Get out, said Aglaya and pushed him in the chest. Get out, Aglaya repeated and pushed him in the back. Then she slammed the door shut, turned the key in the lock and went into the sitting room prepared to cry her eyes out but glancing by chance at the statue, she froze. Stalin was gazing at her so expressively that she had no difficulty in reading complete approval of her courageous act in his eyes. Aglaya's stubbornness begins to get her into trouble when a local party meeting takes a vote to approve the condemnation of Stalin and the party's new direction. For the first time ever, she dares to abstain from a vote of approval called by a local chairman. Everyone immediately threw their hands up in the air and cried out, We approve! We approve! We wholeheartedly and absolutely approve! Who's against abstain, Nechayev asked quickly, running the words together without waiting for any answer. He'd already opened his mouth to utter the customary carry unanimously when suddenly he'd already noticed a slim arm raised in the back row like a solitary blade of grass swaying in the breeze. You? Aglaya Stepanova? How is this possible? Are you abstaining? The whole business smacked him nothing less, how terrible even to utter the words, than ideological sabotage. And all sorts of checks and purges would begin in the district, involving the elucidation of who had stolen how much from where, or taken a bribe from somebody, or given somebody a poke in the face, or taken and given. And although the delegates at the Dogov Conference were all to a man absolutely devoted to the latest instructions from the highest levels of the party, the claim that none of them had ever stolen anything, or given anybody a bribe, or taken a bribe from anybody, or entered a fake item in the accounts, or written off an item and pocketed the money, would have been excessive but the more a man stole, the more intransigent he was in the area of ideology. As a result, everyone in the room begins to loudly condemn Aglaya. After this, she fully expects the police to come and carry her off to a gulag camp or something worse. Despite having maintained for years that anyone sentenced to these harsh punishments under Stalin must have clearly deserved them for endangering the glorious future being implemented by the leadership, in her own case, she suddenly sees a flaw in the system. But as a further irony... Due to the post-Stalin thaw, things are no longer quite that bad. While she loses her position and party membership, she's not arrested. Yet there are still numerous consequences in her personal life. While in bed with her, her boyfriend suddenly realizes that he may be committing an ideological error, and suddenly has to loudly announce that he condemns her political position before leaving. The novel continues to walk us through several further eras of Soviet and Russian history, all with the great statue of Stalin staring down at Aglaya in her living room. Out of favor during the post-Stalin period of reform, she suddenly finds herself again with friends and allies when Brezhnev takes over and attempts to restore more traditional communism. The party even sends her on a luxurious vacation. Then her fortunes are again reversed in the 1980s as the Gorbachev reforms take hold. After communism falls, she finds herself courted by the new supposedly democratic communist party as it gains popularity in local elections. They find new ways to rationalize their excuses of past crimes. You know, as a historian, I take an unbiased view of the figure of Stalin. Under Stalin's leadership, great mistakes were made. Mistakes, well, anybody can make mistakes, but viewed against the course of the historical process, they naturally don't appear so significant. Especially, well, you know, they say Stalin killed so many millions, but we're realists. We realize that if he hadn't, sooner or later, those millions would have died anyway. In the end, Aglaya and her statue died together, an explosion caused by the wars between post-Soviet gangsters. And now we reach the part of the podcast where I have a conversation with my co-host, Manuel, about today's topic. Manuel, what did you think?
1: It's always been amazing to me to um, see how easily, even when facts are right in front of you, but you are so ideologically driven, you start justifying everything. I mean, just the most unbelievable things are justified. And this is basically another story that illustrates that era, but it hasn't really changed a whole lot. I mean, there's uh, we see it as a a something unique now here, but but it isn't. It's it's really uh, that seems like that mentality is still. Roaming around, if, uh, even after years and years of failures that we've seen around the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. I thought what I thought was really interesting about this was you know, you think about this cult of personality, and people say that the whole Stalin thing was a, like somehow a unique mistake among communists. And now that Stalin's long gone, we don't have to worry about what he did. But Then look at what we discussed in our last episode, right? North Korea and the cult of um, Kim Jong-il and his family. And you see exactly the same thing happening again, right? So, I mean, obviously, you know, here in this story, the the farce is taken to an extreme. But in our last story, you know, we heard how a real-life North Korean was brought up to think that his leaders were superhuman. Right. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. he was invited to dinner and saw the leader take off his shoes for his sore feet that he suddenly realized that something was off with that. Mm-hmm. So it's not so unique and so unusual whenever you sort of concentrate absolute power like that, you know, which you have to mm-hmm. do to create a socialist or communist of government. You know, people are naturally inclined to sort of have the fawning obedience for whoever's at the top and can grant them the government's favors.
1: And for some reason, it seems like the people start seeing those leaders as more important than their own family.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of scary. I mean, when you see it, when essentially everything you have in life is given to you, you know, somehow by those leaders, I mean, you can see how that level of worship could rise. But what I also found really interesting about this was the discussion about, you know, why the various uh, other communists, you know, Aglaya's colleagues on the committee were loyal, because you notice that they didn't all share her level of absolute devotion to the leader. so there were some people who... At some level, were thinking for themselves, but yet they'd gotten so used <laughs> to sort of extorting favors from those leaders and using their bureaucratic positions for like major and minor you know, bribes and embezzlement that they realized that even allowing the the slight possibility of any sort of change would put all of their uh, all of their uh, comfort and the details of their daily lives in danger
1: yeah they you, you do seem to get. Uh, two groups of people, those that are really
0: true true
1: believers, and then other ones that are actually more in charge they're kind of skeptical, but they they they're there to get something for them and they're the ones that are typically uh kind of the middlemen getting the benefits like the story says but then uh, uh, their job is to convince the the other ones that the the ones that are the true believers to stay on board
0: yeah yeah and, and these middlemen because they sort of gain their entire livelihood from leveraging the flaws of the current system they'll really tenaciously fight to keep that system in place because they they realize that they're not actually providing any value and that if if there were reforms or changes you know then their their entire personal fortunes would be at risk and they they might end up out in the streets. And, you know, the combination of those kind of people protecting their own vested interests and the the sort of true believers following them is a, a really dangerous combination.
1: What do you think is the level of uh uh people that still want to support a system like that in Russia today?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell. You know, we we didn't discuss much the, the final section of the book, which leads into the post-Soviet times. But the uh, the Communist Party, you know, the supposedly Democratic Communist Party, um, last time I checked, it was like, I think, the second largest party in most uh, elections in Democratic Russia in terms of number of votes won. So there, there are a lot of people with nostalgia for the, the Communist years. And I think, you know, to a large extent, people who had gone along with the system and accepted what it gave them, there was a level of comfort in that, right? They had some some guaranteed amount of fortune, very little in a lot of cases, but there was still something that would be guaranteed for them by the government. And there's some comfort people like to take in that, despite their meager uh, standard of living under it.
1: Yeah, and this, I'm... Um, uh a little bit surprised because this story takes place around the 30s and 40s isn't that right
0: oh, well this is sort of starting with the late 40s up through you know the 2000s
1: yeah okay and in the 40s but it's it's right on during the i imagine during the time when they 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 see all the commotion going on around the world and maybe maybe they thought that was a way to protect themselves i i don't understand why they would uh they would go along with such things uh, uh and and so many people would decide that it, that's a better system for them after seeing what's going on around them or maybe they don't even know what's going on
0: yeah well of course you know stalin controlled information a lot And um, there were a lot of factors in that. I mean, one of the interesting things is, of course, in World War II, once the Germans attacked uh, the Soviet Union, Stalin was able to claim that he was the great protector of his people because of the fact that they won the war in the end. And, um, you know, who could argue with that? It's true. He did prevent the Nazis from taking over his people, and he claimed a lot of credit for that. Now, of course, the amount of human misery he created was competitive with the Nazis, but the people didn't really have the full information about that at the time.
1: So, in a way, he probably got even stronger uh, after the war started,
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it was a devastating, you know, economic and just huge amount of human loss for the Soviet Union. But yeah, in terms of Stalin being able to leverage it to gain power among the people, I think he did that really well. You know, it's also interesting if you look at sort of what he really accomplished for his people, you know, aside from winning the war, I mean, you look at their standard of living, and um, I I had to include that anecdote about the public sanitation systems, just because it was, you know, so uh, stomach churning. But, you know, the people lived this sort of very poor standard of life, uh, compared to the rest of the world. And yet, you know, he managed to convince them that, hey, if it wasn't for him, they would be slaves of Nazi Germany. And, got a lot out of that yeah so what's all this
1: about communism and socialism and statues they love statues of themselves don't they
0: yeah yeah and i think part of it is again when you're the government has absolute power you want to flatter the people in government as much as you can and make them happy right I and mean, everything you have depends yeah. on how happy those government officials are with you Right. And you noticed in one of the quotes, I think uh, Aglaya mentioned how people sacrificed, you know, when they were starving, they needed bread, but they sacrificed at that time to build a Stalin statue. And, you know, it seems crazy. But, you know, that's how things work under that kind of system. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: uh, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. If somebody has absolute power, you want to make sure that (laughs) That you ingrace yourself in them,
0: right? Exactly. Somehow. Whether you starve to death tomorrow might depend on the size of the you know statue of the local official in your town square. Wow. Well,
1: I don't know what to think about all of this, but it seems to me like this is probably ingrained in the human DNA or something to suddenly fall for for this kind of i guess i you can call them leaders but this this uh, messiahs that come along and then tell them that they need to believe in them
0: yeah yeah it's interesting yours use the word messiah because i think this does turn into kind of a pseudo-religion right because remember that under communism yeah. they told people to move away from religion, right it was not approved by the state, and so you know people have this sort of natural need to have faith in some higher power that's going to provide for them and turns into mm-hmm. the the leaders of the country in a system like that when you're not allowed to have traditional religions. Wow,
1: well, thank you, Eric. This was a very uh, interesting story again it's it's really almost the mirror of the uh, last story we discussed from North Korea. Um those leaders also kinda become their their the people's gods in a way, you know, that they worship to. The same thing happens here in this story where people become look at this uh, leaders they have as as greater than human.
0: Yeah, yeah, and again, you know, people might have thought the story we told today was kind of a ridiculous exaggeration, except for when you hold it up next to the story we told last time, which, you know, was talking about in real life how a communist leader really is sort of worshipped as a god. As always... We've only been able to touch on a few highlights of the story. You really need to read the book to get a full sense of the colorful and whimsical cast of Soviet neighbors who passed through the decades along with Aglaya. We hear about party and military officials, loyalists and dissidents, and ordinary neighbors and drunks, each of whom copes in their own way with the various changes to Soviet communism after Stalin. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check out Vladimir Voinovich's monumental propaganda, as well as his other novels for yourself. By the way, if you're enjoying the podcast, we could always use some more good ratings or reviews on Apple Podcasts or your favorite uh, podcatcher's review system. Thanks a lot. And this has been your story of communism for today.